how was your life personally impacted by the time you left St. Louis? What life? What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> it's just, it was gone. It was gone. If you can visualize like a snow globe and just like somebody picking it up and shaking it and just setting it back down, like that literally was the effect of going out into Ferguson on my life. Not all trouble is bad. John Lewis, the civil rights leader and now congressman, says sometimes you have to get into good trouble, necessary trouble. And that's just the kind that Ashley Yates has gotten into for most of her life. I can't remember a time, definitely not in my adult life and not since I've been an adolescent, that I wasn't involved in my community in some way, um, that I wasn't being politicized in some way. Ashley is an organizer and activist. It wasn't always her full-time job, though. But after a police shooting near her hometown, outside of St. Louis, her whole life changed. There is growing outrage tonight after an unarmed African-American teenager was shot and killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson, Missouri. Overnight, we saw the images anger spiraling into violence, some smashing windows and breaking into stores. We have some new video I just want to share with you. These are the the final moments of 18-year-old Michael Brown. So we've taken you inside... Justice for Mike Brown wasn't the only battle Ashley faced on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri. Away from the news cameras... She and others would be forced to confront the toll their work was taking on them mentally and emotionally. For some, that toll was the ultimate price. Edward Crawford, the Ferguson protester captured in one of the most enduring photos following the murder of Michael Brown, has been found dead. Crawford was found dead in his car on Thursday. Crawford is the third prominent protester involved in the events of Ferguson to die within the last three years. And his dad we have folks that were telling us that we weren't allowed to say that we were traumatized. You know, if I talked about PTSD on social media, I would have, you know, people who are probably wearing Magna hats today saying, like, you don't have PTSD. What are you saying? That's, that's disrespectful. And me being like, what the? F-? <laughs> like. From WBZ Chicago, this is The Trouble with Shannon Casey. When you first meet somebody, like for the first time, say I met you at the laundromat or something, how would you explain what you do? <laughs> that's that's an interesting way to put that question. Hi, my my name is Shannon. <laughs> I'm a storyteller. You know, how would you explain what you do? I see where we're going with this. We're getting you're you are a storyteller. Um, that is a really good question. I don't know. I think it it would depend on who they are, you know, because I guess my broad answer would be that, you know, I work for black liberation. Um, I work for the anti-oppression of black folks everywhere globally. But depending on where that person is, you know, as an organizer, what I've learned is that we have to have conversations with people. Ashley grew up in Cleveland and later moved with her family to the St. Louis area when she was 13. She says St. Louis was a culture shock at first. That's because when she was living in Cleveland, Ashley was one of only three black kids at her school. The first school she attended in St. Louis was over 90% black. For me, the joke goes that, you know, my aunt kind of saved me from not knowing who I was. Uh, (laughs) You know, I remember being on the phone in Cleveland and talking to my grandmother and her 
talking to my parents and, you know, saying, who's that little white girl on the phone? And I'm like, what do you mean, grandmother? Like, <laughs> you know, this is how <laughs> this is, these are the influences I was around. This is how I was taught to speak. You know, so I, I had no clue even what she would mean by that. But I could hear it and hear them talking about it. And my aunt was the person who kind of said, you know what, like, you are who you are and this is who you are. So she threw every book at me and I just ate them up. Uh, A Taste of Power by Elaine Brown, Asada, um, Soledad Brother, you know, Revolutionary Suicide. So she's just like, here you go. The one thing she could never, ever get me to do, though, was watch Roots. She had the VHS tape. (laughs) And I'll never forget it. Uh-huh. It was like as long as my arm, you know. And I'm like, there's no way I'm watching something that long. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like ten tapes. I remember watching Roots in school. I had a Black History class, and the whole class, all we did was watch Roots. Ashley had other ideas in mind, though. She was ready to put her aunt's lessons to use. In high school, she got elected student council vice president. With that came the job of reading those morning announcements. I'm sure we all remember. But there were two things Ashley refused to do. Say the Pledge of Allegiance and stand for the National Anthem. My teacher saw that I wouldn't stand, I wouldn't say the Pledge of Allegiance. So she decided to stop letting me go and do the rest of my duties. And she and I had it out. You know, my best friend will still remind me to this day that there was one class period where she put me out in the hall and like tried to make me stand by myself as some punishment because she didn't want the other children to see, you know, that I was being defiant. And it's really interesting, you know, thinking about that now, she was also an immigrant. And so having a a more developed political sensibility now, I can really see how for her that was really an affront, right? And how she couldn't really understand how as a born citizen, I wasn't, you know, respectful of this country and not able to completely see the ways in which this country wasn't respectful of me. Did you have interactions or any relationships with the police growing up in St. Louis? Absolutely. Okay. One of the first times I had gotten pulled over, I was actually headed to my job as a CDF freedom school worker and was, all I had to do was turn into the church parking lot. We were coming from lunch and I just had to turn in and they stopped me at a stop sign. And, you know, I'm like, why are you stopping me? I was actually at the stop sign. I couldn't have been committing any, you know, traveling violation. You you just popped out. What's up? And they told me, you know, hey, we're checking because we have had a string of illegal temp tags. And I'm like, what do you mean illegal temp tags? Well, my father just bought me a car. I had the temporary um, license plate in the back that's written. And then also in the place of where my license plates were supposed to go, I had the dealer plates. So that struck me as very strange, you know, because I'm like, why would I go through the problem of like having dealer plates on my new car? But somehow I'm trying to fool you all. So, okay, I'll let them run all of my stuff. And they called for backup. And then a second officer came around and tried to ask my two colleagues that were with me, two black guys, for their identification. And I got really pissed at 19 or so at this point, you know, just because it didn't make sense. Now I, I look back at that and I'm like, wow, that could have gone a really different way. How many times would you say you have been pulled over? I'd probably say about 25, 30. Wow. Like, yeah. Um, when I go out and I speak, I used to make that point to people to illustrate what over-policing looks like. I bless his soul. Police shot this boy outside my apartment. They killed him. August 9th, 
2014. A 911 call comes in about a stolen box of Swisher cigars at Ferguson Market and Liquor. 10 minutes after the call, Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson encounters Michael Brown and a friend not far from the store. Brown is dressed similar to the description given by the dispatcher. Soon a struggle takes place between Brown and Wilson. From there, the accounts vary, but what we do know is that Brown was unarmed and shot at least six times, dying right there in the street. He was only 18 years old and had just graduated from high school eight days before his death. I heard about the shooting on social media and watched the aftermath on my phone. When I saw the young man's body in the middle of the street, my first thought was, why don't they cover him up or just get him out of the middle of the street like that? I didn't know what happened yet, but seeing the body of a young black man in the middle of the street on my phone made me angry. It was only a year after George Zimmerman was acquitted for shooting 17-year-old Trayvon Martin in Florida, and only a month after Eric Gardner was choked to death by the NYPD. Whether or not the country was ready for it, the killing of black people by police was about to become the national conversation. Talk to me about when you first heard about the shooting of Michael Brown. Like, where were you? I was at work at a retailer, just scrolling on my phone, looking at, you know, social media, you know, expecting to see just the, the normal jokes. Because <laughs> at this time, everyone wasn't, you know, highly politicized on social media. So I just kind of logged in to get some giggles, you know, and definitely did not get that. Um, saw something very different. I, I knew that I had to, you know, go and just see, like, what was happening. I just, you know, I had to just see, like, see for myself and really just understand that that had happened right down the street from where I grew up. So I got off work, drove down there. You know, it was dark at this time, and there were maybe about 30 or so people still kind of milling about, crying, you know, holding each other, trying to figure it out. And I, you know, spoke to them, got the exact same stories that I, you know, had seen on social media live, that he had his hands up. And then they told me that folks were gathering at the police station, which was a couple miles away, if that. So I drove in the car over there and joined about 60, 70 folks maybe who were standing outside that first night just looking at the police and yelling. And that first night we started organizing to get some answers. Did you feel like something in you had changed after that first night, that first night of the protest? To be honest, I can't say yes to that first night. The clear moment where something changed was about four days. I think it was August 13th, I think, after Mike Brown was murdered. And we had been doing daily and nightly resistances, and they shut down Ferguson. Ferguson is six miles wide. So, you know, they literally created, like, an, an apartheid border around Ferguson, Um had checkpoints for people. If you didn't have an ID that said you were from Ferguson, you were not getting into Ferguson. There were, you know, mm. what we were at the time calling tanks, but now I've I've learned that they're Bearcats. But these, you know, military tactical vehicles with, you know, snipers coming out of the top and ladders on the side, you know, stationed at the streets that we would drive on. That was the first night that I found that, you know, to get into Ferguson, we were going to have to sneak in. We had maybe about... 
maybe 60 people, maybe 100 by the time we got done. But we were just standing on the corner and it was the folks. It was just the community. It was the people I knew. You know, nobody was doing anything. Not that I should have to caveat that, but people were just out there standing and voicing our just our feelings, you know, expressing what, what had happened, that it was wrong. Um, there were a couple of police officers out there and folks were, you know, kind of screaming at them, but they were across the street. Yeah. And then more and more started coming <laughs> and more and more started coming. And, you know, it got more tense. He's aiming at us. He's aiming at us. He's fucking aiming a gun at us. People are peaceful shit out here. They're aiming a gun at us. They fucking scaring people away. That's what they want. Look I can hear myself back now in that video, just at, like watching it, because I can't quite remember saying these things, but I watched it and I'm like, oh, that's me. But, you know, I remember turning my camera and just like showing the people that were with me and saying, this is how we showed up. Look at how everybody's out here, hands up, peaceful. Signs. That's all they got are signs. And look what the fuck they got. Look at this. You know, and turning the camera back to the cops and saying, look what the, like, look what they have. This is how they showed up. They fucking throwing tear gas at us. Here they go. Fucking throw tear gas They're fucking back. Get back. Get back. Get back. That's just friends. Get back. Get back. You know, this is what they're bringing against us. And again, military weapons, riot gear, everything that you can think of. The cavalry against, you know, a, a small group of community people. Get back. Get back. Don't shoot. They pushed us off of the corner that we were on, and I remember being very, very upset and kind of snapping because it felt very important for us to stand our ground in that moment. And, you know, to this day, I still don't know. Like, some brother picked me up and was like, come on, sis, we got to go. Like, literally, you know, picked me up. (laughs) It was like, we got to get up off this corner because I was like the last one there still screaming, like, just in disbelief. And they marching. Everybody's up that way. And they marching. Where the fucking cameras at now besides ours? KSDK, KMOV, CNN, MSNBC. I'm calling all you motherfuckers out. Where are y'all at now? You were yeah. so, like, you were so involved and you don't even remember saying the you things that you were saying. You was just. And yes, my language is foul right now because this shit is foul. Totally yeah, taken over. Yeah. Just like <laughs> mission at that moment. Yeah, yeah, just like what is what is happening, you know? Why was it important for you to be there rather than just following it on that social media feed that you were looking at? I don't know if I can say. Maybe that's something in me. In an alternate life, I probably would have been like an EMT. I'm strangely like calm in chaotic situations. Um, I actually just uh, posted something. It was on Facebook a couple of months ago, but it's from... 13 years ago, but around the time, you know, um, when Katrina hit and just this this post about how small my hands felt and being like, damn, you know, I only have two, but at least I have two and I can put them to, to some use. But, you know, in the face of what we're facing, they feel so damn small and still feeling that way, but still feeling like, again, I have two hands, you know, so I can do something with these two hands. It wasn't long before Ashley was doing a lot with those two hands. Besides nightly marches, she helped make meals for fellow protesters and volunteered as a street medic. Through Twitter, she began connecting with other activists in Ferguson. They eventually formed a new grassroots group called Millennial Activists United. Their goal was to get more folks their age involved with activism by connecting them through social media. 
But before activism became full-time, Ashley was still racing back and forth between the marches and a retail job. I didn't sleep for about probably a year, but <laughs> definitely didn't sleep for that first month and a half because I was doing like double shifts. I would go to work and then head straight to, you know, West Florissant or South Florissant. If I had a morning shift, I would get off at about 4, head down there, leave from West Florissant about 3 a.m., go to bed at about 5 a.m. and be at work at by 8, and then doing it all again the next day. So there wasn't a lot of sleep. There wasn't a lot of downtime. There was literally, you know, having clothes in the back of the car so I could change to go to West Florissant so we weren't wasting time, like, knowing that we just needed to have a daily resistance and that, you know, this was an all-hands-on-deck situation. Did it start catching up with you? You're getting light sleep. Were there any signs of mental or emotional exhaustion at that time? Um, Yeah, I think early on, like, you're holding something that you've never experienced before. You're holding something that is an act of war against humanity. You know, you're holding these atrocities that are happening in in my community. I'm seeing things burn that were integral parts of my adolescence, you know, places where I went to buy school supplies or, you know, stopped and got a Slurpee after lunch or, you know, maybe met like this cute boy one time, like whatever it may be. These are, you know, places that are ingrained in my memory and now they're like reduced to ashes. And that's tied into the murder of this this child um, in my community. And so, yeah, that's that's a lot to hold. I think I realized about a month after going out that this was very real. We had street medics coming in and talking to us about PTSD and very surely saying, like, you're going to have symptoms of PTSD. And I remember, you know, the first time I heard that, writing it off. Nah, I'm not going to have PTSD from this. We just got to keep going and, you know, like, just deal with it and figure it out. But about a month later, I definitely was like, nah, this is real. This is real. It's some heavy stuff. And I have a right to make sure that I'm mentally okay with dealing with this. Coming up on The Trouble, Ashley decides to make a new start, but still must confront the past. You know, I felt like everything inside of me was shaking. And I just, you know, remember being very honest. And I was like, y'all, I'm sorry. Like, I, I can't. Like, I don't know what's happening. Like, I'm not okay. I can't do it. About a month into the protest in Ferguson, Ashley realized things were starting to take a heavy toll on her. She tried taking medical leave from her retail job for mental duress, but they wouldn't allow it, so she quit. She also decided to find a therapist to talk to, and not just any therapist. There was no way I could talk to someone, you know, that didn't look like me about what was happening, you know, about what had happened, about the racial dynamics. I remember feeling more like I was her therapist, you know, and it just seemed clear that she, you know, needed the space that I needed, too, but that we couldn't hold that space for each other. You know, I'm not her psychologist. And so I realized then that there wasn't anybody that this hadn't touched. Everything was different in Ashley's world. What used to be home was now something else. Relationships had shifted. When a local reporter asked how she interacted with white people after the Michael Brown shooting, Her response was she didn't anymore. At the time, she says there wasn't a lot of space for her to have conversations with white people that were similar to the kind she had before the shoot. So by the end of 2014, a month after a grand jury decided not to charge Darren Wilson with Michael Brown's death, Ashley decided to leave St. Louis and head west. 
Was that hard for you, leaving St. Louis, going to Oakland? In the moment, I don't think it was. You know, I'd been through a lot of traumatic experiences, not just, you know, politically, but personally, and needed time away and time away from the city. And it it was very hard to be there. It just became very, very clear to me how different the city was. You know, the not only the energy was different, but just, you know, things had literally shifted. And so, you know, streets stopped being just streets. They started being places where these traumatic things had happened. They started being places where, you know, people got tear gassed or rubber bullets or somebody, mm. I saw somebody shot here, or, you know, whatever it may be. And those are things that a lot of our communities hold, you know, a lot of our communities hold tragedies within them. True. The same places where we have our life and our joy. But to have so much happen in such a short time and on such a level, it was just, it made almost, you know, my hometown almost unrecognizable and that really hurt. So I was, I was ready to get away from that for a bit. Oakland had a lot to offer for Ashley. It had a deep organizing culture and many different nonprofits to learn from. It also happened to be the birthplace of the Black Panther Party. So Ashley was sure there was plenty of knowledge to soak up. But a change of scenery couldn't shake the memories of Ferguson. The routine became something else. Ashley describes it as being more security-minded, carrying a full backpack everywhere, keeping track of her friends and family when they went out, never sitting with her back facing the door. This was a new normal for Ashley. It even affected her when she traveled to Selma, Alabama one weekend in 2015. That trip coincided with the 50th anniversary celebration of the Selma to Montgomery marches. It was the first time I had been in a crowd that was so dense. So the last time I had been in that crowd, we, you know, were getting tear gassed and rubber bullets shot. And I realized in that moment that I was oriented differently, that I had to start looking for exits, that naturally, you know, I was keeping track and an eye on my people in a hypervigilant way. You know, I felt like I couldn't breathe in that crowd and that I had to get out of it, that it wasn't safe to be in a crowd. And I had never, ever felt that way in my life. It was a moment that felt really unfair for me, you know, because otherwise being together with that many black people would have been a really joyous thing. But it had this cloud of, you know, the experiences before over it. And I didn't realize that those were sitting there until I got into that situation. And it wasn't just in Selma. Ashley says similar experiences kept happening. One thing that sticks out very clearly for me is being at an organizing meeting at someone's house. And um, this helicopter started, you know, you could hear this helicopter in the sky. And it was very clear that they were close, you know, to the house. And so I remember, like, stepping out, I think, and seeing the helicopter and then trying to step back in and still hearing the helicopter. And people were just, you know going about their normal conversations. And, you know, I felt like everything inside of me was shaking. And I just, you know, remember being very honest. And I was like, y'all, I'm sorry. Like, I I can't. Like, I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Like, I'm not okay. I can't do it. Oftentimes when you hear about something like trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, it's in relation to war veterans. But many different people can be affected by it. Research has shown that racism and frequent exposure to gun violence, whether by the police or within the community, can have long-term mental health effects. I know I have my own triggers. 
I got shot at at a gas station once, and I still feel that unease sometimes while I'm filling the tank. I never had a name or a diagnosis for it, but trust me, I know when it's there. These things happen in our home, right? So I'm hearing and reading about soldiers, you know, being triggered by things when they come home, similar, you know, to the experience that I told you about with the helicopter. Like, that is a trigger, but... The, the catch is that those things happen where we live, so we are constantly triggered. That street isn't a, doesn't transform into a street in Afghanistan. It's the street where that happened. But we're not allowed to feel, and it's like these are very, very clear things that would impact anybody and that you would have no issue saying impacted anybody if those folks didn't have, you know, dark skin. Now, when you realize that you had those emotions still in you during that time, what did you do to cope? Well, to be honest, when I first moved to California, I was introduced to weed, (laughs) so I self-medicated a lot. (laughs) That was very um, helpful and a blessing. Uh Um, So I moved to the right place for that and then started seeing a healer here, kind of a holistic healer. And yeah, I think those were the two biggest things I did for like the first year. I was still working a lot. You know, I was traveling a lot. I was speaking to a lot of people. I was constantly in organizing meetings or out and doing things. And it wasn't until about, like, August 2016 where I was like, I need a break. (laughs) You know, like, I realized, like, oh, I need to sit still. As Ashley made strides, hard days still persisted. Among the hardest were the days when she learned a fellow activist she came up with losing their lives way too young. Over the last couple of years, at least five have died from causes ranging from suicide to homicide to natural causes. Marshawn McCarroll was just 23 when he took his own life on the steps of the Ohio State House. 32-year-old Mahiden Moy, an activist from South Carolina, was shot and killed earlier this year in New Orleans. His murder is still unsolved. And at the end of 2017, came the news of Erica Garner. Erica Garner, a prominent social justice uh, activist who spearheaded protests against police brutality, has died this morning. Yeah, she had been in a coma after suffering a massive heart attack last week, uh, left her with severe brain damage. She was 27 years Mm. old. Erica is the eldest daughter of Eric Garner. Remember, he was killed in 2014 after New York City police officer uh, put him in a chokehold. That's a move that... Erica Garner's death in particular was a reminder of the pressures that come with the life of an activist. The long hours, the lack of money, the lack of health benefits that some with a 9 to 5 might take for granted. Ashley told a New York Times reporter that if someone as prominent as Erica Garner could die so young, then who was safe? She says that she sees a lot of herself in Garner and the others who have passed. And in seeing herself, she also sees a way forward. Part of seeing myself in them is is honoring the ways that I can do better and honoring the ways that I can help make sure that, you know, I don't meet the same fate, specifically speaking and talking about like Erica Garner and just like the the toxicity of what she had to deal with after, you know, the death of her father and knowing how she held that and that there weren't a lot of community resources that were helping her, you know, move, literally move stress out of her body. The stereotype, right, is that we're out here dying from heart attacks because we all eat high salt 
just this like this really disparaging um, attitude around beautiful soul food, you know, taking that and trying to make it something they were ashamed of. And it's like, that's not that's not the cause. That's not the reason why folks are dropping dead. You're fairly young, around, what, early 30s? Yeah, I'm in my Jesus year. I just turned 33. <laughs> Jesus year 33? That's all <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I got to do something spectacular, I think. <laughs> Speaking of that, Jesus year, do you feel you think about your own health and mortality more than you would if you were doing some other type of work? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I think, you know, if I were still, like, pinning mannequins, I definitely wouldn't have as much, you know, mental duress. I also wouldn't have as much, you know, spiritual fortitude and satisfaction and being in purpose in my life, you know. Um, Do you think about your mortality? Do you? Yeah, I think we have. you have to when you do this work. You know, you're constantly confronted mm-hmm. with it. For me, the, the struggle is if I don't think about it. The struggle is if I begin to think that I'm invincible because then it's a thin razor jump to the other side of, uh, I don't need to feel this, right? Like, if you're invincible, then you don't have feelings. And I'm not allowing, you know, myself to really be human and have what are natural reactions to trauma. It may sound strange to people, but I've actually come to value that. You know, like we say, like, there's a lot of healing and value in crying. And, you know, anybody who knows me is like, I hate crying. Like, I hate it. I just don't like the feeling of it. But, you know, I've come to to know that that is something that I need to do and that that is important. For you, has it all been worth it? Mm, that's a hard question because, I mean, who? how do you measure what's worth it? But I guess, you know, if, if being in your purpose is worth it, then yeah, definitely. But it's not always easy, and I think— when people ask, you know, is it worth it? They mean, like, is there an ease to it, right? Like, did it all work out and click in the end? And it's like, no, I still struggle to eat. Well, meaning like sacrificing your emotions, all those things, like the sacrifice. And um, when you say you're in your purpose, I mm-hmm. think that that's, that's clear, you know? Yeah. And it's not it's not an entire just sacrifice of my emotions. You know, the um, the other month I was in Sacramento and helped with the action where they shut down the Sacramento Kings game. Stefan Clark, a 22-year-old unarmed black man who was shot and killed by police in his grandmother's backyard last weekend. Hundreds swarmed downtown Sacramento uh, yesterday in protest. And that was a, a real kind of revival for me. It was the first time I had been in the streets that really actually felt close to, you know, Ferguson. It was the community. And so people won't get this unless you've actually been out there and really held space. But that for me, you know, it's not a sacrifice of emotion. That's a that's a gift. I've thought about this gift. The gift of speaking up against the powers that attempt to contain you. The gift of fighting for what you know in your heart isn't the way things should be a gift that others gave their lives for, and a gift that could end your very own life. Ashley's trouble is my trouble. I mean, literally, my trouble. She's fighting for equal treatment of people who look just like me. And honestly, I'm grateful for that. 
She saw the trouble during the murder of Michael Brown. When that young man's dead body laid lifeless with blood running down a hot street for the whole world to see. She accepted the challenge to change things no matter the cost and deals with the repercussions financially, physically, and emotionally, but knows that she's working in her purpose. And I totally get that. The necessary trouble we take on reveals our purpose. The Trouble is a production of WBZ. I'm Shannon Kaysen. The producer is James Edwards, with help from Candace Mattel Kahn. The senior producer is Joe Dassault, and the executive producer is Brendan Banizak. Our intern is Sophie Lalonde. We're looking for other stories of trouble, and I want to talk to you. Get in touch. We're at the Trouble Pod on Twitter. You can find me there too. I'm at Shannon Kaysen. Or you can email us, thetroublepod at gmail.com. Tell me about some trouble you got yourself into and how you got out of it. Or not. Subscribe to The Trouble on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to these things. And make sure you give The Trouble your best rating and review. And do me a favor. Try to stay out of it.